Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk with Sam Vecini. There are a lot of different things to go through in terms of the prospects and the NBA draft, because not only do you have the NCAA tournament that's been going on and developments inside and outside of that, guys declaring for the draft and going out, but also the Nike Hoop Summit was this past week, and while Sam didn't go, I did, and so we used that as an opportunity to talk about the 2018 prospects as well, which he is very familiar as well. Of course, you know, it's talking about guys that he knows well. So this episode is brought to you by three great sponsors, longtime Real Jam Radio sponsors, Movement Watches. You can go to mvmtwatches.com slash realgm for 15% off your off your purchase. Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. Blueapron.com slash realgm gets you three meals for free on your first order. And SeatGeek. You download the free SeatGeek app and you use the promo code REALGM for a $20 rebate on your first purchase. The podcast with Sam runs about two hours. It is on the heftier side. We weren't planning on going that long, but we knew it was a possibility and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm always happy to come on here, Danny. It's always a great time. Uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate Real GM Radio. I appreciate everything that comes with this territory of talking about the NBA draft. So it's always an exciting thing. And if I get a bit rambly, it's because, you know, at the Final Four in Phoenix last week, I was sitting just mere feet away from greatness in Bill Walton. And he was just talking the entire time on some sort of random topics and uh, like all sorts of you know crazy things that Bill Walton gets into. So let's get into this thing. You caught contact enthusiasm? I caught contact enthusiasm. I caught contact excitement. And we're going to talk about the draft. Let's do it. Conference of Champions. They have a lot of guys here in the top lottery section. They do. And I think the place to start is at the top of the 17 draft. We'll talk a little bit about 2018 as well. But 17, Markel Fultz was widely considered to be the number one prospect. Did not make the NCAA tournament, so the second year in a row where the player who was expected to to be the best prospect didn't make it. Big scope question first, did anybody make a step in there more than you expected to kind of encroach on his territory as the best prospect? No. In the NCAA tournament, you mean? Or just generally throughout the rest of the season? Either way, whatever makes you happy. Yeah, not really for me, no. Some people right now are calling it like a 1A, 1B situation with he and Lonzo Ball. And as we'll talk about once we talk about Lonzo, I don't really agree with that at all. To me, Markel is just the best, most well-rounded offensive prospect. I don't want to say that I've ever scouted, but like at least in my memory, in terms of the way the NBA is going and what his trajectory looks like. So this is a guy that can score from all three levels, just full stop. He has a 50.4 effective field goal percentage on jump shots off the dribble. That's the second best among top 50 prospects. I want to say that Frank Mason is good, and you'll see why I really like Frank Mason if we talk about uh, sleeper prospects later on. You know, he's fifth among all high major players 
with at least 100 attempts in that capacity. So he's a really good shooter off the dribble, uh, again, from all three levels. Can score from the mid-range, can hit floaters, can hit three-pointers back to the 22-foot range uh, behind the three-point line. You look at his ability to handle the ball. He has tremendous change of direction and change of pace. He's so creative, both in terms of the way he handles the ball and in terms of the way he you know, is able to make plays for teammates and dime out guys either like in the corner on slashes or uh, like little dump-off passes with one hand and wrap around. He's a really, really skilled passer, really, really skilled ball handler. And then you look at what else he has in terms of like size and athleticism. I mean, he's six foot four, like a near six ten wingspan. He can definitely rise up and throw down with just about anyone, I would say. Like he's not like an elite level dunker, but he's probably uh just that level below. Like he is great vertical athleticism. And then there's finally just the intangible aspect of the way that he plays. He plays with just such a remarkable tempo about him. And it's something that people talk about with Lonzo Ball, too, and I totally agree with it in regard to Lonzo. But Fultz also does it, too, where he totally understands how to get guys on his back in the pick and roll. He totally understands the way that he's if he's going to go slow, he's just going to kind of methodically get into the middle of the defense and then throw up a floater or dime a guy out whenever the defense collapses. Or he can just explode if he wants to. And he has tremendous spin moves and he has tremendous... uh you know, acrobatics around the rim in terms of scoring around the rim. He has all of the like special boxes that you just kind of hope to tick in evaluating a prospect. So I think he's very clearly the number one player on my board. Uh, if you want to, you know, make an argument that if like Phoenix gets the number one overall pick, that someone like Jason Tatum and Josh Jackson should be in contention for number one and should go number one. I'm totally willing to listen to that argument. And I think that there's a very strong case that could be made there. But for me, in terms of the way that I evaluate prospects, Markel Fultz is the number one prospect in this draft. The biggest difference for me between Fultz and Ball is risk mitigation. So Ball, there are these open questions about whether he can create separation. I mean, the, he has yeah. remarkable skills, but there are unanswered questions. And we'll, we're going to talk about Ball versus De'Aaron Fox, but I think that manifested a lot of that sort of stuff. Right. Fultz is not a perfect prospect, but he is strong on some of the things that Ball is good at, and he is better at some of the things that Ball is weak at. And while that doesn't guarantee that he is going to be a superior player, the higher floor and close, if not superior, ceiling makes it an easier call than it would be otherwise, because it's not six in one hand and, and half a dozen in the other. It's more complicated than that. And I, I think I just think from a value perspective, while Ball is is a, a talented prospect and a guy who's going to be taken very high, the choice between the two of them, in less in almost all circumstances, to me, as much as I like Ball, the choice seems pretty straightforward. There's one circumstance that I can see a single team potentially taking Lonzo Ball over Markel Fultz. And I think it's Philadelphia. If Philadelphia is dead set on playing Ben Simmons as a lead guard, lead perimeter ball handler on offense, I can see deciding to take Lonzo as a guy that, you know, is okay moving the ball on. He's not going to have the ball stick in his hands. He can really shoot it from 28 feet and out. And I think that that floor spacing could really help with Simmons and Embiid inside. If Philly gets that pick, I think I would kind of, understand if you would like try and make an argument for Fultz over ball or ball over Fultz. I'm sorry, but I would not take 
Lonzo Ball over Markel Fultz in any circumstance. Uh, it's just kind of the way that I evaluate prospects. And we can, I mean, do you want to just jump right into Lonzo? Because I think I have Lonzo a little bit lower than a lot of people do. Well, before we move on to that quickly, one of the big issues that I have, while I agree with you on the kind of the logic of Philadelphia making a different choice just in terms of structural talent, they have a very real situation to analyze, which is, do they feel so confident in Ben Simmons' ability to not only be that guy, but stay healthy, that they're willing to take a a good player, but not as good a, a prospect? Because that's something that teams do sometimes as a mistake, where they rely on something that they're hopeful is good. I, I've, I've used, and it's not fair to him, but I use Alfred Payton for this a lot, that Elf, like when the Magic drafted Alfred Payton, they weren't going to take a point guard for a couple drafts. And while Payton's doing fine, I've been happy with his improvement this year, that can pose some real problems if the player is not good enough to justify the sacrifice. And while Simmons easily could be. I mean, he was the number one guy with a bullet for me last year. There is no guarantee with anybody who hasn't played NBA minutes. So this is what I really like about Denver's front office, right? I think Denver does one of the best jobs drafting of any front office in the NBA, if not the best. Not only do they have the best international scouting department in the NBA, but they also are willing to, I don't want to say cut losses because I don't think Emmanuel Moutier is a sunk cost by any means, but the fact that they were willing to take Jamal Murray last year and Murray, I think probably still is going to fit best as, you know, a ball handling two more than like a pure point guard. But the fact that they were willing to take a guy in Jamal Murray whenever you already have Emmanuel Moutier in tow, I think it took a little bit of courage in the way that we don't often see from front offices. Would you agree with that? I would. And it helps that Gary Harris kind of is a position bender defensively. So you kill it. I love Gary Harris. You can go through a couple different directions with him. But yeah, that mentality. I mean, they built up kind of an army of shooting guards and now they can look through all those guys, see who's good, see who isn't, and then move some of them. They drafted Wancho, even though they have a lot of bigs. And I think that was a very good thing. He was the best guy available for them at that spot. And that's the right way to do it. You, You take the guy who you think is the best prospect, who you think will produce the most value for your team, either on that contract or over the time that you have team control over them. And you figure all the rest of it out later. And the teams that do not do that often are the ones that are left holding the bag and wondering why they missed on X player instead of instead of getting the person who ended up becoming the best player. Can we talk real quick just about my love of Gary Harris? Because that's yes, who I think that guy might be like a top 50 value in the NBA to me. Because of the way he bends positions, like you said, he's so good at guarding both the one and two. He creates so much utility in terms of the way you can go about building your roster. Oh, plus he's averaged what, like 16 points and five rebounds over the course of the last, you know, I think since like January or something. And has just been remarkable in terms of the way he's able to defend players. That guy is an unbelievable role player in today's NBA. Think about the guys that, that Denver got from that trade down. So Chicago traded up to get... They got Doug McDermott. Doug McDermott, that's right. And then they traded down. Those picks became Yusuf Nurkic and Gary Harris, right? Yep. Both solid NBA starters, albeit one of them traded prematurely, or not prematurely, but just that that whole situation we don't need to talk about. But Here's what happened, though. It turned into Gary Harris, Mason Plumlee, and a first-round pick, if you want to say that. Like, that's still ridiculous. Yeah, that's still a great return. Yeah. Um, No, I love Gary Harris. I think he is just an unbelievable piece to build around for the future. But going forward, we can talk about Fultz's like downside, I guess, like Markel Fultz. 
he doesn't give an F on defense this year, we'll say. Yeah, that's uh, he, a big he, issue. Yeah, he did not care in the slightest bit on defense this year. And I honestly, I think the part of it is just the team situation around him. So Washington this year had, I want to say it was like the you know fourth or fifth youngest roster in college basketball this season. And then around him, he also had, uh, if you take his three-point shooting out of the equation, that team shot like 31% from three in Pac-12 play this year, which is just egregiously bad. There was no roster talent on that team this year. Like people were telling me like, how can Markel Fultz not beat Washington State once whenever they played? I'm just like, well, Washington State between Josh Hawkinson, Rogbu, you know, Malachi Flynn, maybe even Connor Clifford, like they have the next four best players on like those two rosters. That's how bad Washington was this year in terms of talent on their team. And you throw in the Lorenzo Romar factor and he just got fired because he was just kind of, you know, not doing the best job in terms of his coaching on the floor, at least. And you know, it's really easy for me to, you know, excuse why he wasn't successful from a team basis. But the defense is an absolute concern. He really needs to show that he's going to give even the slightest effort because the tools are there for him to become an above average defender. I don't even think he needs to get there. I think he just needs to become an average switchable guy who cares in some capacity on defense uh, to become an all-star level player. I'm really high on what I think Markel Fultz can bring to the NBA. You mentioned switchable, and I'm intrigued by that with him because we have seen in the recent past, well, Blake Griffin has, you know, he has immense physical tools. He always seemed to underperform his physical potential defensively. When the Clippers started switching more, primarily this year, they did a little bit of it last year, but more this year, it looked like it activated him a little bit. And I think that might be part of the answer for these more apathetic guys, because especially in some ways for somebody who's on ball as much, like Mm -hmm. it's just a different way of dealing with it. And I think it can be more engaging for those players. And you kind of have to stay in the flow of it because you're not in your own world. You have to be connected. Yeah. I think that engagement is a really good word to use there. Uh, Switching defenses definitely do seem to keep guys a bit more engaged because you really have to battle if you're switched on to like a guy who's six foot seven, six foot eight. If you're Markel Fultz, you really have to battle to keep position and keep that guy from scoring on you. So, uh, it's a little bit different than like you're on a guy that's six foot four and running through 18 screens. It's just kind of a different paradigm, I guess, in terms of the way that you attack just the mentality of defense in that manner. So I agree. I think that switching defenses have kind of helped the way that teams can activate their own defenders. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Let's move on to Lonzo. And I don't know if you want to talk about why, you have, why you're have lower on him than other people through the prism of the Kentucky De'Aaron Fox game, or if you want to use another one, but I thought that would be an avenue to do so. We can use that game. I mean, we can use the game earlier in the year, too, where De'Aaron kicked his ass as well. Because he did it twice this year in the uh, game against Kentucky in the Sweet 16, I think showed a lot of the concerns that people have about Lonzo Ball moving forward to the next level. The first concern that pops up to me is that he's not an elite level scorer, which seems to be something that you need from the point guard position today. Like you need to be able to rely on a guy who is your lead ball handler to go out and get you a bucket off of the dribble whenever they 
have to do it, right? You see it with guys from Chris Paul to Russell Westbrook, who are very different players, to James Harden, who's a totally different player from them. Uh, you know, CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard are both very different players, but they can do it. Even a guy like George Hill has shown the ability to go around a screen and either get a mid-range jumper or get to the rim or, uh, you know, pull up from three. That's something that Lonzo still has to show, I think. Uh, he hasn't yet shown the ability to consistently get his own offense uh, beyond just like three-pointers on step-back 22-footers, 25-footers, and, you know, drives to the rim that are sometimes very contested or, you know, sometimes he does it where he's an off-ball cutter and throws down those cool layups. It's why he shot like 70% from two-point range this year, and he shot 40% from three-point range this year. He is He's the first ever college basketball player to shoot 70% from two-point range plus 40% from three-point range with over 100 attempts from each range. But the thing with that is it's almost a negative in its own capacity, right? Because it shows that he doesn't ever try and get a mid-range jump shot. And I think for lead guards particularly, being able to come around a screen that mid-range jump shot's always there for you. You have to be able to knock down that mid-range shot, and especially whenever you're talking about Lonzo, I think teams are going to shade him to the right, and they're going to force him to pull up from that mid-range shot. And with the way that his shot works mechanically, he has to dribble from the right, he has to pick the ball up, bring it all the way over to the left, and slingshot it back to the right, kind of. Just like mechanically, that's kind of the way his shot works. And I think it's going to make it a little bit longer of a process so that defenses can recover. And I just wonder how efficient he's going to be whenever he has to go all the way across his body in situations like that. So I think that he is a very special talent in terms of the way he affects the game because he makes everyone want to play with him just with the way that he always keeps the ball moving. He always keeps his guys engaged offensively. I think that's a big reason why UCLA had the best offense in the country this year. But he is a very situational player in that he needs to play with someone who can consistently get that shot because I don't think he is the guy that you necessarily want creating for himself at the end of a shot clock right now. I talked with a few people at the Hoop Summit and by and large, I got kind of a weird amount of begrudging agreement with my my kind of pet idea with Lonzo, which is that as much as you know that I'm not a big fan of the classifications of point guard, shooting guard, all that kind of stuff, through the postseason, you know, Lonzo is one of the few college players I watched throughout the year. My idea is that he's just a straight two. He's, you know, he's better. He, I mean, he can have the ball in his hands more than some shooting guards. You know, like, I think he's better at, he's better at doing that than... You know, then especially as a, as a rookie coming in, than like Clay Thompson was, or even than Bradley Beal was, though he I, I liked his ball handling, uh, projecting as an off ball guy. There, there are two reasons for that. One is I think that resolves some of the issues in terms of his pull ups because that's just going to be a problem. I think it's just a problem as long as he keeps the jump shot he has, and while it goes in, it's a problem in that capacity. The second part is Lonzo is not an elite athlete in terms of lateral mobility in terms of kind of some of that stuff he's he's an intriguing athlete in this in kind of the same way as other guys that don't have the you know kind of the combine numbers that are just they have good hand-eye coordination they can figure stuff out so it's not like he's a bad athlete he's just not that explosive athlete and i think putting him primarily against other shooting guards would help resolve a lot of that so 
my concern there is, and I think that Lonzo, we can get into this whole LeVar thing now because I've talked to scouts who think it's a problem and I've talked to them who just don't care, right? Like, I think it's going to be a situational thing. But I think that Lonzo is a very good kid and you should not necessarily equate LeVar with Lonzo. But I do think there will be an ego factor to where he wants to be a point guard. He has been told that he is a point guard throughout his entire life. And if you put him off ball like that, I think that it will create issues, basically, with the terms in terms of like his engagement and in terms of what his skills look like on the NBA basketball floor. So I don't know that the two works for him because because of that you know what i mean like you could that's an interest that's an interesting idea and it's something that's true for a lot of nba players which is that their ideal role is not necessarily one that they're comfortable with right and like that's why i like the idea of him with a ben simmons right and like there's a whole other ego ball game if you throw him joel Embiid, and ben simmons onto the same team because good god but having said that I think you could tell him, hey, you're the point guard. We're going to have Ben uh, bring the ball up sometimes. We're going to run you off ball. You know, you did this in college with Bryce occasionally, and you've done it in college with Aaron Holiday sometimes. So we're going to kind of do a similar thing to that. You're still going to be the point guard, but Ben's going to uh, kind of handle, you know, primary initiation duties from time to time and maybe even 50% of the time. I think he'd be fine with that, but I don't think straight two works for him either because he is still a guy that you really want to have the ball in his hands. He he is so unselfish in terms of the way that he initiates offense, that it keeps everyone engaged. And I know that like, like you said, I don't really like to have uh, labels on the positions. Like this guy's a one, this guy's a two, this guy's a three. But I do think that if he is off ball more, you're going to have him be a little bit less engaged and you're going to have a team that, isn't necessarily reaping the full benefits of why you take Alonzo Ball at number two or number three or number four or number five. That's a fair point, certainly. And I it, it makes me, I've, I've kind of grown this way over the course of the year where part of what has hurt him is that I think he he's less versatile than I thought he was. He'll, he'll work places, but it's the degree of success. I think that will, that will shift a little bit more. And I hope that he gets put in the right circumstance to make that work. And I used to think he, you know, he, he can fit everywhere, but that he really can thrive in specific systems. The sister, the Sixers would be one of those. There are a few others that I've kind of bounced around with, but we can we also just bring up one more thing on him. Of course. The other concern with him and again, like, I feel like we're just crapping on Lonzo right now, which, you know, whatever. Like, I have him at number four on my board. Uh, I think that's probably lower than what most people have him at. And that's kind of why I, I am a little bit more critical of him than others are. But the other concern is just the ability to create separation. You saw a guy in De'Aaron Fox that, you know, we can maybe like just shift to him now, get up in his grill and really get him at the point of attack. And it threw his game off. It's done it now both games that they played Kentucky. De'Aaron Fox is an elite level athlete for a point guard in terms of quickness, even by NBA standards. Like that, that skill is going to translate, no doubt in my mind. But there are a lot of guys in today's NBA from Chris Dunn to Patrick Beverly to Tony Allen, who you could throw on a guy like Lonzo Ball. And, you know, Gary Harris is another one. We can just make this the Gary Harris podcast. Like you could throw those guys on Lonzo. They're going to get up on him at the point of attack and really, you know, kind of bring him out of his comfort zone. It's going to be incumbent upon him to improve his ball handling to the point, because I think that's kind of a sneaky 
He's not a bad ball handler, but I don't think he's as good of a ball handler as he needs to be yet. That's kind of a sneaky, I don't want to say weakness, but a sneaky spot that he needs to improve. Uh, If he can improve his ball handling ability, I think that it would really help him against those high-level aggressive athletes who are going to try and get up in his grill at the point of attack because it would force them to back off a little bit if he's going to be able to cross them or if he's going to be able to just kind of handle the ball by them. I'll bring up another we can call it a silver lining. I'm also high on Lonzo Ball. Like This is just when you're comparing him to Fultz and you're talking about a guy who some people have at the second best player in the draft, you know, you want to talk about this. And if you want to hear right. Sam and I praise Lonzo Ball, listen to any of the other podcasts we've done. But so one of the other silver linings is point guard as a nominal position, and we've talked about our frustrations with that, there's enough talent there that if he has to slide to the two, let's say, let's say I'm right, but it takes time. That is not devastating at all for him. He can still provide a lot of value, and there are a significant number of teams, especially players with unusual skill sets, where that would be a wonderful fit, and there are actually fewer good twos in the league than there are ones. So if that's kind of the worst-case scenario, he's still a really good, really useful player. Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's saying that Lonzo Ball is going to be a bust here. Like, he is a really good basketball player who is going to start in the NBA for a good long time. Uh, it's what is his ceiling? What does he have to do to get to his ceiling? And I think there are very real places that he needs to get to, that he needs to get his game to, because you mentioned the athleticism earlier. I actually think he's a really underrated athlete. I think he is an above the rim player who, uh, is pretty quick. And when he wants to defend, he's a really good defender, uh, because he's so big, he's so long, he can defend one through three pretty capably, especially now that he's put on some weight and he's going to continue to put on strength and general, you know, heft to his body as he continues to age. But I, I do think that there are places he, he does need to improve to get to the point where he can be an all-star level player. And I think that those places where he needs to improve are more evident and more clear and more bountiful than they are for Markel Fultz. And I'm not saying Markel Fultz is going to step in and be an all-star immediately, but there are fewer places that he needs to tangibly work on his game than Lonzo needs to work on his right now. Before Sam and I move on to some of the other prospects, I want to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches is a great success story because what they have been able to accomplish is producing high-quality material, high-quality watches, and sell them at a reasonable price. And they did that by cutting out middlemen and a lot of the other elements that make department store watches more expensive. So for there, you're looking at, you know, $400, $500 for a nice watch and and they're beautiful watches. I'm not knocking them for what they are, but movement watches are are beautiful timepieces and you can get them for as low as $95. I have a rose gold and a leather one that is absolutely gorgeous. It's a beautiful timepiece. I really do enjoy it. I'm picky with my watches and I think it's it's just beautiful and get compliments on it. And they have a lot of different styles. So they're, you know, people have very different preferences with watches. Movement has something that you're looking for. And also one of the things that I love about their promotion with us is that it's a straight 15% off. So you go to Movement Watches, that's M-V-M-T, watches.com slash real GM, and you get 15% off. And that includes free shipping and free returns. And since they are an international company, they've sold 
more than 1 million watches in over 160 countries. It's a way to support the podcast for those of you who are outside of the country. So that's a great thing you can do. And there, you'll find something that, that fits in with what you're looking for. They have great watches for men, great watches for women, whatever you're really looking for in that sort of a realm. And again, the URL is mvmtwatches.com slash realgm. You can check out the amazing selection they have, get 15% off, support the podcast, and join the movement. We can go on to the other guys that are point guards kind of at the top end of this draft. And I think if you want to talk about Monk, I think he's a little bit separate. But the next two are De'Aaron Fox and Dennis Smith. Where do you see them like between the two of them? Is it more of a beauty in the eye of the beholder thing? And how do they fit in with kind of that tier of prospects that I think I'm sure for you, if you have Lonzo for involves Jason Tatum, involves Josh Jackson, maybe Malik Monk and a few other guys? Yeah. So for me, I've got like a two through six tier, right? And I think that, you know, some NBA people might even throw Dennis Smith into the tier below that. But I think that Smith's ceiling is so high that I want to kind of keep him above those guys. So I have De'Aaron Fox at five and Dennis Smith at six, right? Lonzo Ball four. Like that. those three guys are all just so close in terms of what they can do on the floor. De'Aaron Fox fits super, super well in a situation where you want to run a ton of high screen and roll. You want to get out and transition. You want to create this hard-nosed defensive mentality, maybe at a high higher tempo. Uh, he's really good at that because he's incredible at the point of attack defensively. He's a great, great playmaker for teammates, and he's a really, really good scorer who can get to the rim, finish above the rim with size, length, and explosion. Uh, he's a really, really good uh, you know, floater, runner game that makes him effective in the mid-range. And I don't think the jump shot's nearly as broken as people think it is. I think that he's going to be able to figure it out and he is going to become like a 30 to 33% three-point shooter at some point. And if you're talking about that, I understand that, okay, maybe that's not like this fantastic level of shot that you would hope for from your point guard, but it's enough to keep defenses honest. And whenever you throw in the rest of his bevy of skills, I think that it all works out to him becoming a, a very high level prospect. You talked about his finishing and that ha- that has been a surprising element. Also, his jump shot has looked better mechanically than I had remembered it, it being either last year at the Hoop Summit or various other moments. One concern I have, and this is just something that we're going to have to see in summer league and then preseason next year is just one of the biggest jumps now in the NBA. It it's kind of like the parallel of linebacker in the in the NFL versus versus college football is just this physical speed and strength of yep. the big men. Like he's been going against SEC bigs and you know some of the NCAA tournament guys. That's going to be a big adjustment. I think he'll be able to make it work, but until we know, I'm a little bit shaky on it. But that's not a a unique De'Aaron Fox criticism. That's just a point guards who are, who are good at finishing in college. Say. Well, I think he's going to be a good finisher at some point, but I don't think he's going to be a good finisher early in his career. He's so skinny. He's just going to get beat up when he goes to the rim in the NBA early in his career. But that's fine. I think he's willing to take that on. I think he's going to take on the challenge of it. And I think he's a really good basketball player. I, I just believe in his hard-nosed mentality. I believe in basically every way that he plays the basketball game. He's a really good kid. He's a really smart kid. He attacks the game in the right way to become a successful NBA point guard. Dennis Smith is a wild card, man. That guy, I mean, if you told me that guy was a eight-time All-Star who you know potentially averages 20 and eight over the course of those eight years, 
I would not be surprised in any stretch of the imagination. If you told me he's a backup in four years, I'd be like, okay, I see that too, because he just never totally figured out how to be efficient. His athleticism and explosiveness is the best in this draft, probably. I, I can't think of anyone uh, in this draft who compares to him athletically. And, and that's after a torn ACL. Yes. It's insane that he has totally bounced back from that torn ACL athletically and become what he's become. The rest of it has to do with mentality. He takes plays off from time to time. I was talking to Jeff Goodman, and I think that he talked about Dennis Smith, talked to Dennis about this and wrote about it midway through the year. Dennis knew that he was kind of taking plays off midway through the year. He understood that, you know, I can't do this. And it continued to happen. And part of that might be situational in NC State. Part of it might be, you know, he just doesn't want to defend as hard as he can sometimes. Or he doesn't want to, uh, or he takes possessions off from time to time. That, that's not what you want to see. But his ceiling is as high as any player in this draft not named Markel Fultz. Uh, he is so explosive and he has the ability to shoot the ball from deep. He can really get up in your grill defensively with quickness. The key is going to be mentality. It's going to be frame because he's still pretty skinny and it's going to be injuries because of that knee injury. Is he going to hold up long-term given that skinny frame and given the uh, pressures that that explosive athleticism has already put on his body and uh, you know, his body already failed him once. As you know, one of my favorite terms for NBA players for draft guys is undeniability. You know, if a guy is if a guy is engaged in doing what he does, is he how hard is he to stop? And so you can draw LeBron is probably A1 in the league right now. I mean, you could go back to old Shaq, you can go to a lot of guys. Yeah. Dennis Smith, you could easily to me make an argument that when he's at his best, he is either number one or number two in this class at being undeniable. It's just that he doesn't reach that level as consistently as most of the guys who can reach that level. Go watch that Duke game. They the won Cameron, in right? Cameron Indoor. Oh my God. That is one of probably the 10 best individual performances of this college basketball season. You can throw Malik Monk's multiple games in there. You can throw Markel Fultz put up a crazy one against Colorado, De'Aaron Fox against UCLA in the NCAA tournament. Like, you know, there are a lot of really strong examples. Josh Hart against Notre Dame sticks out in my mind as well. I mean, th he did everything in that game. He was great defensively. He was engaged. He hit shots from deep. He tore apart their pick and roll defense and they're a pretty athletic team. So like that was impressive to me. Like everything that he did in that game was just absolutely, like you said, it was undeniable. He is, to steal another phrase that you and Nate use regularly, that guy is a nuclear athlete in every sense of the word. And if he figures it out, his ceiling is like genuine eight-time all-star. If he doesn't figure it out, there's no guarantee that that guy's a starter because of how skinny he is and because of how inefficient he can be from time to time. Are there any teams that that you think about with Dennis and think that's a better, <laughs> better or worse spot for him. Uh, I can think of the funniest spot for him. Uh oh, Sacramento. Well, yeah, but I, I think Sacramento actually makes some sense because of the idea that it's so hard for them to get stars, and since their pick didn't end up being as good as maybe they hoped. I mean, obviously the lottery hasn't happened yet, but the expectation is that they would be. I'd be. I think it, he would be. If they fall, the, let's say they get the sixth or the seventh pick, I think he's probably the play because how often do you get a chance to get a real star at six or seven? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sacramento is a funny place for a, like you know two of these point guards. It's hilarious for Lonzo Ball because can you imagine Lavar and Vivek on the sidelines together? Like how amazing would that be? They would have a show. 
there would be a show and it would be amazing. And then Dennis Smith is also kind of a funny one because that Sacramento organization would just enable the worst tendencies of his game. And that would be really disappointing, I think, in a lot of ways. Because of the positional similarity, we skipped over the guys that you have second and third in this class. I don't even know which order. I, I, I like the surprise of not seeing your board yet because I believe you submitted it, but it's not yet up. Those two guys yeah, so are we're recording for people who don't know. We're recording this on Saturday. Uh, my big board goes up on Monday. When is this podcast coming out, Danny? Sunday. Sunday. So my big board will go up on Monday. So the people who listen to this podcast will have a little bit of a sneak peek. And those two and three guys in either order are going to be Jason Tatum and Josh Jackson. I know you love Josh, but Tatum, since the last time we talked, he he had a pretty good run of it before they ran into South Carolina. Yeah. So here's what I'll say about Jason Tatum. Uh, Jason Tatum is one of three high major freshmen over the last 24 years to reach 16.8 points per game, 7.3 rebounds per game, 2.1 assists, and a 56.6 true shooting percentage. One was Ben Simmons last year. Another one is a guy that is also in this draft who I think is a little bit underrated. Even uh, I think I even have underrated him a little bit in Miles Bridges. And we'll talk about Bridges at some point, too, because I'm not even like 100% sure that he's entering the draft. But I think it's definitely worth talking about him regardless. Jason Tatum, I think, suffers a little bit. And we can talk about this with Jared Allen as well. Suffers a little bit from the bias of first impressions. And people saw Jason Tatum's first 14 games of the year and were like, this guy is selfish. He's a ball hog. He doesn't have a ton of basketball IQ whenever he has to pass it. And uh, he get, uh, like fades in and out defensively. And, you know, when he's on, he looks like the number one overall pick. But when he's not, he looks like an inefficient gunner who's going to take the mantle from Carmelo Anthony and be less efficient than Melo was. If you watch him over the course of the last like two months, month and a half, that guy figured it out in college basketball and became a tremendous passer. He became an efficient college basketball player. He started to knock down corner threes, at least, uh, not necessarily deeper, uh, you know, above the break threes. I think that he still needs to continue to improve his, I'm sorry, his range uh, from deep. And I think that'll happen, though, because he's a really, really hard worker. And that's the thing that you kind of... You know, the people who talk to NBA scouts and executives and people within basketball, Jason Tatum works harder at his game than just about anyone in this draft. And he has desire to be great. Uh, and I don't think that publicly people kind of ascribe enough feeling to that and they don't ascribe enough value to that it's why some people have jonathan isaac over jason tatum which to me is kind of banana land even though you look at what jonathan isaac can do on a basketball floor there there isn't anything he can do on a basketball floor if he puts his mind to it the problem is putting his mind to it with jason tatum this guy is maybe the best isolation scorer in this draft he can create his own shot he's a switchable defender you know he rebounds the basketball he plays that combo 3-4 position that has become so essential in today's NBA from the wing position or from the big position where you can hopefully at some point he will be able to do this he will be able to guard fours at some point in his career guarding fours while being able to play on the perimeter and maybe playing the three as a uh, offensive position quote unquote this guy is just a tremendous tremendous this basketball player. He checks every box in terms of his ability off the floor and on the floor. Does that mean that you've moved Tatum ahead of Josh Jackson? I have. Yeah. I have Jason Tatum at number two on my board. And a lot of it does have to do with this idea of trust, right? So Josh Jackson's had, you know, those two incidents off the floor 
this year where one of them was like a hit and run situation that, you know, obviously wasn't reported to the cops. And then the other one was what seems to be a very complicated situation with LeGerald Vick and a member of the Kansas women's basketball team that I'm not 100% sure what went on there. And I don't really want to speculate on what went on there, but if there's something that's going to keep him out of the top three or top four or top five, it's going to be the off the floor stuff because people, the weird thing is you really need to get to a point where you can trust a player once you have him, once you have a top three pick like this, right? Josh Jackson, I'm not like a hundred percent sure I can trust that guy off the floor, but when he's on the floor, the killer's mentality is there, man. You know, I think the first wing since Dwayne Wade to put up 16 points, six rebounds, and three assists per game. He really improved as a jump shooter throughout the course of the season. If you look at his final numbers, he actually hit a 58.6 effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers, which was in the top 25% of all Division One basketball players this year. So I really like what Josh Jackson can do on the floor. I think that that guy is a, an absolute killer. He is just incredible motor, uh, incredible intensity, tenacity, everything that you're looking for in terms of those buzzwords that people talk about come draft time. Just the off the floor stuff. Whenever you're talking a margin that's so close between him and Jason Tatum, I think that's enough for me to go Tatum just slightly over Jackson. But again, I think you can make an argument if a team like Phoenix, you know, needs a killer like Josh Jackson on the basketball floor next to a guy like Devin Booker. I think you can 100% make the argument Josh Jackson should go ahead of Jason Tatum. The other reason I personally at this point prefer Tatum, and I need to watch a lot more film of both of them, is just the offensive projections. I mean, I, I, when I watch Tatum, I see a more complete offensive player and somebody who whose game will translate. And, and you talked about his work ethic. I, I can see that working a little bit more easily than Josh. Jo- Jackson's done a lot to quell my doubts, but I just feel more comfortable with it with Tatum. And I, for when we're, we're talking forwards in particular, I focus more in that in that realm, especially with the way the league is going. But they're both talented. They both deserve to be in that conversation. And it's very possible that those guys go higher than than some people think, just because a lot of teams in this draft don't have as as much of a, a real need for point guards. I mean, there are a lot of them that can use it. I mean, that basically every team can use all the point guard help they can get. You can look at even like as Oklahoma City outside of Russell Westbrook. You know, having having an extra guy who can who can give you eighteen to twenty minutes a game is great, but. Having a, a wing, especially if either of those guys can stick at the three, it, those guys are worth their weight in gold right now. We're seeing inferior players on the wing get max contracts because of scarcity. Yeah. I mean, you look at the wings that are in the NBA right now. Uh, I was listening to Mike Schmitz and Evan Daniels talk on Evan's podcast earlier today. And Mike brought up the name, the fact that Rodney Magruder is in the NBA right now. Uh, and Rodney, I think, has worked his ass off and deserves to get to the NBA. But I mean, you look at some of the point guards, some of the bigs that are out of the NBA right now. I think it says a lot in terms of what we need uh, on the wing in today's NBA. And I think that you look at just some of the teams that are at the top of the lottery, right? So Boston has Isaiah Thomas and Marcus Smart. Phoenix has Eric Bledsoe, Brandon Knight, Tyler Eulis. The Lakers have uh, D'Angelo Russell. And Philly has Ben Simmons, who they want to run as a legitimate point guard. Uh, Minnesota has Ricky Rubio and Chris Dunn. It seems like they really like Chris 
has done a lot there. Dallas has the god Yogi Ferrell. Charlotte has Kemba Walker. Miami has Goran Dragic. Denver has Moutier and Murray. And I hope that you noticed that I threw Yogi Ferrell in there because I love Yogi Ferrell. But having said that, like a lot of these lottery teams don't necessarily have this immense need for a point guard position. And I think that a lot of those teams that I just mentioned, if they went Jason Tatum and Josh Jackson over some of those elite point guards, it would not surprise me at all. I do like that you brought in Yogi Ferrell, and Yogi Ferrell will be on one of my all-rookie teams for a reason, because I thought he did a nice job this year. And... You have a vote this year? Oh, no. I, I, have a, I have a vote in a podcast. I don't have a real vote. I'm not, I'm not oh, at that level yet. You should absolutely get a vote because you know more about this than 90% of the people who vote, if not like more like 99. <laughs> that is something that Nate deserves a lot of credit for because being able to do dunked on or basically having to, to do dunked on is what drags me into watching. And I mean this in a good way to watching everybody as, as right. much. And I do appreciate you saying that, but it, it's and like Karis Levert is on and I, I, I'm still mad at him. This should be Levert, but it's Levert and <laughs> the guys in kind of those smaller different different pockets are, are underappreciated. And also, I mean, we don't have to go into this very far, but the rookie stuff, I broadly think it's far more important to play well than to play a lot of minutes. And there are a few guys that played a lot of minutes that did not play particularly well. And I, I don't care about that. I don't think that they, they should get Chris, for instance, is a very good example of this. He is. Marquis Chris has been incredibly valuable in terms of getting him those minutes and also helping ensure that they retain some of the most ping pong balls. People That's- are real excited about him and I don't really get it. His ceiling is crazy. Like, I mean, his ceiling is crazy, but it's also fraught. You know, like you, you, you and I have had this conversation before about how the different thresholds, and I should probably write this as a piece at some point, but I haven't yet, about, you know, like, so you could think about the universe of options, and I usually think of it as like 100, the 100 most reasonable outcomes for a player. So you can think of it kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure along the line. So the 100% is the absolute ceiling, best best case scenario. Zero is the worst case, you know, like, what could happen? My problem with Chris is that the margin between his 100% scenario and his 90%, which I consider something around there the reasonable best case, is crazy large. Because what he needs to do to get to be a really valuable player is hit basically everything he can do. This comes as like from a guy that needs to just improve his basketball IQ in terms of like making smart decisions on the basketball floor. The guys that I trust to get better are the guys that I look at from the time that they're rookies, second, third year players that make really smart decisions on the basketball floor. I don't see that with Marquise. I hope that I'm wrong. I I say that with everyone. Like I want every single NBA basketball player to be successful. I I want them all to hit their ceilings in terms of their eventual value. And Marquise Chris, I believe has come from like kind of a tougher background. And I really hope that he is able to get everything that, he wants out of basketball, but I I just don't see it with him. And I haven't like, I had him at like number 16 on my big board last year. And I had him below guys like Scal and below, I had him below like Jakob Pertle, which you had him below Wancho, I I would assume right around the same range, probably with Wancho had him below other players, had him below both Zubats and Zizic, which I think is being proven right so far this year, to be honest, like these guys, I think it takes, a lot of circumstances for players to get smarter. And Marquise Chris is one of those weird cases where he didn't play a crazy ton of basketball before he was drafted. Like he, he didn't get super serious about basketball until like midway through his high school career, I believe. And 
those guys can dramatically improve their IQ in a way that often can't be accounted for. But I'm okay missing on that guy, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that does make sense. Before we move on to some of the other topics, we still have a lot to get through. I want to tell you about Blue Apron. Blue Apron has become something I really do look forward to. I've actually really been missing it for the last little while due to traveling for the Hoop Summit and just being busy with my book and everything else. And Blue Apron was something, is something that I look forward to all the time. For example, this week I have a sweet and sour salmon that's coming, which looks absolutely awesome. And then a burger, which will be great because they do an incredibly good job with with beef and with, with seafood which is why I chose the two things. And a big reason why Blue Apron is is excellent is because of their high quality ingredients. And that is an essential part of cooking. And it's a a great benefit for Blue Apron because getting those ingredients, if you want to go to the store, whatever store you want to say, is expensive. And usually you're not going to get the right quantity. And if you use Blue Apron, you are not only getting incredibly high quality ingredients, but you are getting exactly the right amount. So if that means that you're worried about underbuying or or overbuying, or if you're somebody who's concerned about food waste, it really does tie in those two things together. And the primary protein, whether you whatever you really prefer, is incredibly high quality. It's it's absolutely amazing. There's a reason that I get particularly salmon, but get the seafood every time it's really on on the table because it looks so, it looks so good and it tastes so good. And Blue Apron is a way for those of you who like to to eat well. It's a great way to eat well. If you like to cook or you want to get better at cooking, it's a great way to do that. It's also a nice way to build up your recipe inventory. For somebody like me who didn't really grow up cooking as much because I kind of relied on my parents in that way, it has been an amazing tool for doing that. And I have in the past and in the future will continue to make modifications and inspired dishes from things that I started with Blue Apron and techniques too. It's a very important part of this. And so you can really do all of that with Blue Apron. So you go to blueapron.com slash real GM and you get three meals for free on your first purchase. So it's a great way of trying it out, seeing what you like, seeing if you believe in it the way that I do. And I did start as a, you know, a skeptical person and it has fundamentally changed the way that I think about food the way that I think about cooking in an absolutely wonderful way. So you go to blueapron.com slash real GM and you get three meals for free on your first purchase. And now back to the conversation with Sam. There's still there's still so much ground that we can cover. And I mean, we can talk about some of the other high-end guys, but we've had those conversations before. So let's instead kind of turn to the NCAA tournament itself and who used the tournament to elevate their stock I guess, yeah, let's let's do them separately. So who do you think helped themselves during these three weeks, whether it was in one game or in five or six? So I mentioned Miles Bridges earlier in this podcast. Uh, Miles Bridges has, I think that a lot of people tuned Michigan State out like midway through the year once they started to struggle a little bit. He was incredible as a freshman this year. I know that he's six foot six and, you know, he has relatively short arms and, you know, there are some issues with his game. I don't think his jump shot is nearly as great as the numbers indicate. I think he shot a little bit over 40% from three this year. I think that he's kind of a, kind of a Justice Winslow, like, I don't want to call him like a fake shooter, but I do think that 
the numbers are lying a little bit there. This guy goes out and just uh, plays incredibly well against Josh Jackson. I know they lose the game by 20, but it wasn't that bad with like five minutes left. It was like an eight or 10 point game with like five minutes left. Um, he goes out, drops like 20 and eight or something, 25 and eight against Josh Jackson. And it really was the same stuff he's done all year, right? Like when I look at Miles Bridges, I see a guy, I have him at number eight or nine on my big board. I can't remember. He is maybe the prototypical type of player minus the length. If, if he had like a seven foot wingspan, I think he would be like a top five prospect. The fact that he's a little bit shorter though, and is going to have to play a decent amount of the four tempers my enthusiasm just a little bit. He's the prototypical guy where you're going to have him guard some threes, guard some fours, and he's going to be able to play in the perimeter on offense as an off ball cutter or as a spot shooter. Uh, once that jump shot develops a little bit more, hopefully he is a remarkable type of connecting player. I call them connectors where you can use this guy to connect different types of lineups. You can play him as a three in a bigger lineup. You can play him as a four in a smaller lineup. You can play him as a three in a smaller lineup. If you want to play like two combo forwards and you can have him guard the four eventually because he's so strong throughout his lower half that I think he's going to be able to keep guys off the block even despite that lack of length. And plus he's just, again, a nuclear athlete who is going to probably win a dunk contest someday i'm getting higher and higher on miles bridges the more that like i kind of think about the way his game works at the next level and the crazy thing is again like he hasn't decided whether or not he's going to come out like i I was told that it was really like a 50 50 proposition uh as of the final four and you you listen to like tom Izzo. tom Izzo stayed away from the final four which for people who don't know kind of acts as a coaches convention type of situation just to meet with Miles and like talk him through the decision. And if you know Tom Izzo, Tom Izzo is not going to stop anyone from going to the NBA if they really want to go and their lottery picks. But it does seem like Bridges is a little bit more torn about his NBA decision than you would expect from a top 10 pick. And if he decides not to go, that'll be two top 11 selections that would decide to stay in the, uh, stay in college next year because Robert Williams also decided to stay at Texas A&M. So that is a, uh, you know, th- that that would not help this draft in terms of its depth. It would also be disappointing because there are a lot of teams in the range where he would probably get chosen that could use a guy like him. The ones Denver. that stick out. Denver, Miami, because they have to replace basically their entire rotation. I think he would fit in perfectly there. <laughs> and then also, they have wings. They're one of the few teams that does. But I would love to see how Dallas would use him. I don't think yep. that's where Dallas is going to go. But if you had... Him and Harrison Barnes and Wes Matthews and Dorian Finney-Smith and the and Carlisle's good enough at developing ones. You know, set they're going to have Seth Curry again next year. They're going to have the God Yogi Ferrell. They can make they can make all that work. And I think he'd be beautiful there. And you know who else he's a killer fit with if they don't end up making the playoffs? Chicago. You put him next to Jimmy Butler and, and just the way that he's able to play off the ball and on the ball. Man, he would be he'd be a killer there too. And also with Bridges, he would help in the way that he's good enough that you can and versatile enough that you can play him with a lot of different players and that Chicago gets into this idea of versatile players being more valuable for teams that A have cap space and B are in desirable free agent locations because That's you can point. you can dance them around a little bit. Andre Guadala is a great example of this. Andre Guadala can do a lot of different things. He's he's you know, he doesn't have the versatility on his jump shot that Bridges hopefully will. But those players ratchet up their value when you don't know what's coming. And drafting role players is a very underrated, valuable skill for 
big market teams. Like right. you should, big markets should almost focus on drafting the best role players that they can because they have a better advantage to getting star players. Like if you're the Lakers, that's what I loved about Brandon Ingram because Brandon Ingram is going to be able to fit in any situation that they want to put him in. You know, D'Angelo Russell, they kind of shot for the moon with D'Angelo and we'll see if that works. It does seem to be working coming down the stretch here. And, uh, you know, his numbers match up really well with any sort of young point guard that has entered the league. But I totally think that these big market teams should be really trying to knock it out of the park with these role type players who can fit in any sort of capacity. The Knicks are just a totally different dumpster fire because no one wants to go play for Jimmy Dolan. Except for their surprisingly deep cabal of international big men that they've been able to get through the last couple of years. Eric, hey, you know what? That department deserves a lot of credit. Their international scouting department really is one of the more respected ones throughout the NBA. So, they've done an awesome you know, job. Kudos to them. They, they really... I'm glad that you brought that up because they deserve some sort of mention in that capacity. A player who is getting some shine because he's on the national champion. And I I think how I want to ask this is, can you tell me why? Because I haven't seen much of him recently. I saw him, of course, at at these nations last year. What is it about Justin Jackson that makes people think he's a lottery pick? I don't have him that high. I have him at number 17 right now. I don't really think of him as a potential lottery pick. Uh, If you do like kind of a deep dive into his advanced numbers as well, it's a little bit scary. But what he does well now is he is like a genuinely awesome jump shooter. Like he, he is a guy where you can immediately see him making an impact with his ability to space the floor, which is crazy given where he was a couple years ago, right? Like this guy was uh, a non shooter from 20 feet and out uh, as of even last year and the year before that during his freshman year at North Carolina. And whenever you combine the fact that he is remarkable mid range player who can knock down floaters and hit mid range jump shots, the three point shot has really opened up his offensive game in a way that, you know, was not expected. And then you look at him, he's six foot eight, 610 wingspan. He's gotten better defensively over the course of his time at North Carolina. He was really engaged. He did a great job against Malik Monk. You know, did a pretty good job against Oregon and, you know, some of the other guys that he had to match up with there. Tyler Dorsey, Dylan Brooks, he was on occasionally as well. He does he does a great job defensively now and or at least compared to what he was. And you throw in the ability to space the floor. He's kind of like a three and D style player that might be able to create a little bit more off the dribble than a typical three and D type. He also the the part of the argument that I definitely do see with him is that his game fits in so well as a complementary piece in the NBA. You know, yeah. he's not going to be a star. And there aren't that many stars in the NBA, so you can, you can make it work. I worry a little bit about him defensively, but the idea of him being kind of like a, a switchy forward at both spots is intriguing. You would need the right defensive five to make it work, but you need that anyway, so it's not that big a deal. Well, I almost think he's more 2-3 than 3-4. Interesting. Which is, it's more because of his strength speed. I would oh, say okay. actually, his lateral quickness is actually pretty underrated. I think he did really well against guys like Tyler Dorsey and against smaller guards uh, in the NCAA tournament throughout the college basketball season. It's just kind of like a weird, like little quirk of his game. Like he's not a great athlete necessarily, but he's a quick athlete. 
And I think that that really helps him gain space whenever he's coming off screens. And it also really helps him when he attacks closeouts because he has a sneakier first step than you think he does. You see this kid that's like hunched over and he's skinny, he's gangly. He doesn't look like a great athlete necessarily. And he's not a great athlete either, but he's a quick athlete. And I think that uh, that catches some guys off, off guard a little bit. That's interesting. Is there anybody else you can think of that really helped themselves? That- well, Zach Collins, I think, really brought himself to the forefront. He was a guy that I think most people had as like a top 25 prospect in college basketball before the NCAA tournament. I had him at like 21. I've moved him up to like 16 or so. He's the only player in the last eight years to put up a 70 plus true shooting percentage on a 24% usage rate with a 9% block rate as well. So it's kind of like, it kind of shows like the two way efficiency that you can potentially envision from him. If everything goes right in his development, because the thing with him is, is that He's a really good rim protector that contests everything. He has the ability to use the great footwork in the post to create shots against mismatches. And he can shoot the three ball a little bit as well. Uh, he hit like, I want to say 11 of 23 or 24 shots from three this year. The thing with him is, is that he doesn't have a lot of experience generally just compared to other players playing basketball. It's all relative. I mean, Zach Collins obviously has a ton of experience playing basketball, but whenever you're talking about a guy that he hasn't started four of his last five high school slash college years as a freshman, because if you look at his you know history in high school, he went to Bishop Gorman in Las Vegas in Nevada. His starting centers, his first two years in college were Steven Zimmerman. And then his junior year, it was Chase Jeter, who went to Duke. And then he started his senior year. And then this year at Gonzaga, he also didn't start. He sat on the bench behind Shemek Karnowski and played 17 minutes a game. So there's a lot of development, especially in terms of frame and in terms of the way he thinks the game out that he needs to undergo. But if you draft him and it all goes right, you're talking about a potential primary rim protector who can knock down threes and who can post smaller players. Basically, players like that, you can't switch against them defensively and they create a potentially awesome defense for you. Like that guy is a top five pick if everything goes right. Very similar logic to why I fell in love with Miles Turner. They're different right. players. Turner and Collins are different players, but that's kind of the logic is similar. Right, exactly. And I think Collins even has a little bit better of a post game. He's a little bit more mobile than Turner. Turner's just longer and he's a better shot blocker, uh, especially from the primary side of the ball whenever they're going in because Collins gets a little bit wild. He contests everything around the rim, which is a skill that you want, but he still hasn't figured out how to do it without fouling yet. He averaged like six and a half fouls per game, or I'm sorry, per 40 minutes this year. It's just going to take time while he fills out his body and while he does uh, all of the things that he needs to do to do to improve his game. I like him. I have him as a potential lottery pick right now. I have him at number 16 on my board, but there's a long way to go from where he is now to what his ceiling could be if everything goes right. I will say I'd be legitimately impressed if he averaged six and a half fouls per game. Yes. No, that, that can't happen even in the NBA. But no, six fouls, six and a half fouls per 40 minutes, I believe. So some of the other big guys that I'm intrigued by, we'll just do kind of like quick one or two sentence hits on them just because I think it'd be good to run through them. We haven't talked about the big guys as nearly as much over the year as you and I have about the point guards. Jared Allen... I really liked him last year. Was I think that was it? The was that the hoop summit? Probably. He was at hoop summit last year. And he I was liked really him. good. I liked him, and so and he's Out, his thoroughly top. outclassed Marquise Bolden at hoop summit. You know, everyone was still like Bolden, Bolden, Bolden. Uh, I, I was never big on Marquise Bolden, I guess, and I still continue to not be big on Marquise Bolden. 
So Jared Allen, do you see him more as kind of like a, I, I think he could be intriguing as an offense defense combination guy, not the right kind of build right now to get all the way there, but I think he could, he could work on his body enough to, to become impactful on both ends. Yeah, he's like 6'10 with a 7'5 wingspan. He's another guy like Jason Tatum, like I mentioned earlier, that he really improved throughout the course of the season. And I think that his rough start kind of made people tune out a little bit more than they should have. In Big 12 play, he averaged 16 points, 10 rebounds, and two blocks per game, which are you know bananas numbers for a freshman in the Big 12, which was the second strongest conference in the country this year. He's just a really, really polished basketball player who can now score efficiently at the rim. He is continuing to extend his offensive game out a little bit. It's not quite where it needs to be yet, but he's improving in that capacity. He has the ability to protect the rim a little bit. He's not a great rim protector yet, but he's getting there. The problem that you hear about with him is, you know, just how committed to basketball is he? I think that that that's a question for sure. And we'll see throughout the course of his development. Does he improve on the plane that we're hoping that he improves upon as people who evaluate prospects? But you just hope that he continues to improve upon his game. Do you want to talk? Who else do you want to talk about here? We talked about Collins in this uh, mix, and he's the next guy on my board in terms of college basketball players. So you have John Collins, Wake Forest, Justin Patton of Creighton. I think of both those guys as centers. Do you think of both them as centers, or are they going to play some four? Well, Pat Patton's a hundred percent a center. He's okay. seven feet, seven foot three wingspan, long standing reach, shot blocker. Uh, not a great rebounder right now. Which I would say that's one thing to watch. But another thing to watch here as well is he was just generally less engaged after Maurice Watson's injury. Not only did you see drops in terms of points per game and his efficiency, I mean, his field goal percentage dropped by 10 points uh, after Maurice Watson went down, but you saw he just looked less enthusiastic on the basketball floor, it felt like. And maybe that was, you know, Maurice Watson goes down and we're not going to be able to make as deep a run as we were anticipating. And it really affects the rest of the program. But man, that's a guy that scares me to draft because there, I mean, there's just a lot of concerns there in terms of his rawness and his maturity on the basketball floor, I think. John Collins is a very mature basketball player, I think. Uh, he is very polished. He was one of the most efficient basketball players in the country this year in terms of scoring out of the post, getting the ball, and, uh, you know, from 15 feet and in, just putting it in the basket. And he was a killer rebounder this year. One uh, really important thing that I think is going to stand out to NBA scouts is that he's a really good roller toward the basket. I think that Bryant Crawford, his point guard at Wake Forest, is a really underrated NBA prospect in his own right. I think that uh, I would have him right around the top 50 of my big board if he was deciding to go to the NBA. But Collins averaged 1.6 points per possessions in roller situations. That's second out of 350 Division I players with at least 30 possessions in those situations. So the fact that he was not only able to be dominant on the offensive glass and be dominant as a post presence, but also really be dominant as a roller going toward the basket, I think that that helps his NBA stock a lot. The problem with him is, is that he's one of the worst defenders in college basketball. I've been told, uh, I think that Evan Daniels told me this, that he has a negative wingspan. He has no defensive instincts whatsoever. That's just being factual. But he's a year younger than most sophomores are. He's like freshman age. I want to say he's younger than Josh Jackson. So there's time for him to get there. But man, does the defense scare you. 
And that probably pushes him more towards power forward just because of the limitations of having a guy like that playing center, of course, also with his negative wingspan. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely a definitely a valid concern. But even guys like Brandon Wright, you know, like Brandon Wright kind of figured out how to play the center position. He's a little bit shorter than John Collins, but he's way longer arms and that makes it easier for him. But he's still not like a great defender either. You know, if you can use a guy like Brandon Wright or a John Collins as a roller or as like a short corner cutter to the basket or shooter from the 15 foot range. I think that guy has a lot of value, at least as a third big man in the NBA, even if he doesn't necessarily reach the starter level. One last guy, just because he's local for me. Where is Ivan Rab right now? I have Rab at like 34 on my board. I I don't know what he does at the NBA level. Do you? I, I just don't know. Athletically, he's a center, but he's too skinny probably to play center in the NBA right now. And he's a really skinny frame. Can't really shoot the ball that well yet. Good rebounder for sure. He's become one of the best rebounders in all of college basketball. Okay defender, smart positional defender, but not an explosive athlete. Where does that guy fit in today's NBA, I guess? Could be a backup big, you know, third or fourth best guy just because he's he can I think he he can he can react well to stuff. There were elements yep. of, of his freshman year that I enjoyed, but it's very hard to take a guy like that high in the draft, and that's why I mean obviously where you're picked doesn't mean everything. And if you, if a player wants to stay in college for those reasons, they can't, they can do what they want. They're adults. But in terms of maximizing your financial, financial future, it's why I would advise just about everybody. If you are a locked in first round pick go. Yep. There's one guy this year that I think you can reasonably make the argument that he should stay in school or like could stay in school, not should, but could. And I think it's Zach Collins because Zach Collins would step into a starting role at Gonzaga. He'd be playing for a team that's going to be a top 15, 10 team in the country next year for sure. And Gonzaga's developmental staff is so damn good at doing the things that he needs in his game. He needs to add strength to his body. He needs to just kind of get more comfortable on the basketball floor. If that guy does all of the things that I think he can do next year playing starting center and playing 30 minutes a game and averaging. I genuinely think he could average like 20 points and 10 rebounds and three blocks a game next year for Gonzaga. If he does that, he's a top five pick. And in next year's draft, which I don't know if we'll get a chance to talk about, that's saying a lot because the top four in next year's draft is loaded. So I think that you could reasonably make an argument for Zach Collins because I think that there's a lot to gain for him without a ton of downside because of how good Gonzaga is at putting players in positions to succeed. But even him, I say, okay, he's going to be a top 20 pick, go. Right, and it's the idea of downside risk, and he can do that development in the NBA. It's not going to be a big deal. I think you know, I could certainly see the argument for him, but I think I would advise, if, if you were asking me, knowing what I know right now, I'd tell him to go even then. Right. And I generally agree with you. Like, I'm not someone who thinks that you can't develop once you decide to turn pro. And like the college game is so much better for player development than the NBA. I think that that is absurd on so many levels. But with Gonzaga, I just know how that staff operates. We've seen a proven track record out of them in terms of developing players from Kelly Olenek to, you know, Kyle Wilcher to Damana Sabonis from freshman to sophomore year. Like we've seen a genuine ability in that staff from Mark Few to Tommy Lloyd to everyone involved there to their strength and conditioning staff to genuinely improve players and their bodies and their capacities to be comfortable on the basketball floor and be in positions to succeed. So I could at least see an argument for him. 
is what I'm saying. The idea that you can't improve, though, once you get to the professional ranks is a myth that is perpetrated upon people by adults that have a stake in the matter of keeping kids in college. That's a fair way of putting it. It's completely ludicrous to me, when, you, especially when you look at the way that some of these guys have developed, both international players like Rudy Gobert and domestic players like basically everybody on the Warriors or numerous other teams. I mean, we've seen so much skill growth in current NBA players, and they're throwing more resources into it now than they ever have before. Oh, man, Rudy. Rudy Gobert. We've talked about him before, but that guy is the biggest miss that I've ever had in a, in a draft. Just full stop. <laughs> and, he's one, and he's one of my biggest hits. So that's that's yeah. always fun. At some point we should on my podcast, we'll do a uh, like our biggest misses as people who talk about the draft. You and oh, I should do that. And talk about who we've just been totally wrong on. Because the, that'll the fun, be fun. The fun part of that for me is that my stuff is public from 2008 on. You just have to know how to look for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, no, it's, I all, think... it's all there. And you'll see some really stupid stuff. Because one of the things that I did was in my early days, I still like this philosophy of doing it, is I would include in my rankings all draft-eligible players, whether they declared or not. And I think part of the reason people don't do that is because it allows you to get out of some really bad bad opinions. But the benefit of it is that I think it does put things in greater context some po- at some points. I mean, we're seeing fewer guys it does. make mistakes and stick around. But I remember that because Blake Griffin stayed for two years at o- Oklahoma, didn't he? Yeah. So like I remember like I, I thought it was good context to put him in. I think I had him second or third in that in that class before him. Just to like, yeah, remember like the, the there are guys coming up that are really good too. I don't disagree with you. I think it's very valuable. It gets so convoluted now though, with the one and done being as as a parent and uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's just such a part of the basketball culture now in terms of the draft that you would need to rank like Marvin Bagley and Michael Porter and like guys like that who are nowhere near their development now. And it just gets impossible once you get to a certain level. Sam and I are going to talk about the Hoop Summit and the guys in the 2018 class in just a minute, but I want to tell you about a way that you can see some of these guys, whether it's in college or in the pro ranks, the ones that are jumping this year, and that is through SeatGeek. SeatGeek is my personal way of buying and selling tickets to sporting events, to concerts, to other events, because it is a great place primarily to buy tickets, and that's how these things interplay together. You want to sell your tickets in the best place to buy tickets, and that, to me, is SeatGeek. And SeatGeek is great because it is an aggregator, so you don't have to worry about going to a bunch of different ticket sites and worrying either about getting the best price or just simply availability. You know, if you want a specific section or something like that, if everything is out in disparate places, you need to have it in one place. So SeatGeek does that, saves you time. And also, because they use deal score, it can save you time and save you money because what SeatGeek is trying to do with that is get you the best combination of seat quality and price. And since there's a lot of personal preference involved, they're never going to get exactly what you want at the very top, but they can narrow your field to the ones that might interest you depending on what you want, whether you're focusing on something within a price range or you're focusing on the best seat possible or a certain section. Deal score, like aggregation, actually saves you time and money in that way just to make sure that it narrows your field to the best options there and you can choose between those. And Real Jam Radio listeners can benefit from 
getting $23, basically, because what you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and then you use the promo code REALGM, it's under the settings tab, and then they just give you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So you download the free app, get what you were going to get anyway, try it out, see if you like it as much as I do, and then by entering the REALGM promo code, you get $20. So you were getting to go to something you were going to go to in the first place, try something out new, support the show. And now we'll move on to Sam, which we're going to talk about the Nike Hoop Summit a little bit. If you have the time, let's, we could talk a little bit about the Hoop Summit. I just got back a, f- a few minutes ago, actually, from the summit, and you've seen those guys plenty. I- is there anybody that you that you want to ask me about or that you think we should discuss, other than I'm sure we have to talk about Michael Porter? Well, let, let's talk about who you just felt, because what this was maybe like your first or second experience with a lot of these guys, right? Right. So I would say... So who was, who was your favorite? We'll just start with like a very broad, basic question. Like who were guys that stood out to you? Michael Porter was significantly the best player on the floor for some of the most important points. He wasn't really in the game itself, but that's the benefit of being able to see all the practices. There was one play that will stick with me. If he ends up being a good NBA player, it will stick with me for maybe even decades, which well, was, he's going to be a good NBA player. Was <laughs> he, so, so, cause at first he was doing a lot of his damage as a jump shooter and he, he has a, he has a really nice mechanical jump shot. But he had he went up and he got a pass. I think he was cutting down the lane, got a pass, and he went up for a one-handed dunk. He lost the ball midair, so he's off the ground already. He lost the ball, caught the ball, and dunked the ball. You don't see that. Like, that's almost impossible. And I was just sitting there. I can't remember who I was sitting next to, and I'm just like, he lost that ball. And I, you, you don't see that. Like you don't see. I, I've covered the NBA now for eight years. I think it, it was, it was a crazy sequence. And he, he's not perfect at first. I, you know, because I don't see. You know, I, I'm somebody who values so much. You know, the the guy who can take the offense on his back and just take it. I'm not sure he's that guy. At least from what I saw, but he can do so many other things. And his physical potential is is absolutely insane. Yeah, Michael Porter is like six foot ten, six foot eleven, like Jason Tatum in the way that he is just so polished in terms of the way that he attacks. He's a little bit more athletic than Tatum and his just size kind of makes him a better prospect in general, in my opinion. And I have Jason Tatum at number two on my NBA draft board. So that tells you how highly I think of Michael Porter as a prospect. He's just a guy that uh, he made the leap. I want to say it was last summer. Uh, he was always considered like this kind of soft stretchy four maybe uh stretch four who wants to be a three type throughout like his junior sophomore years he was a five star but like he was a guy that a lot of people had their doubts about but then this summer he took that leap or i guess it was last summer now given the fact that we're already in april but he took that leap last summer and really uh really came into his own as the best high school player in america and you know missouri's got a shot at the NCAA tournament because that guy's on their team. And Conzo Martin probably takes away that chance to get to the NCAA tournament because he's not a great basketball coach. But Michael Porter is just such an incredible talent that I am just so excited to see what is in store for him next year and in the years to come because I think he is genuinely an all-star level player. He is legitimately hard to to do a true comparison for. Like there There were numerous names that were thrown out during the summit time and – all of them were lofty praise. I mean, except for some, a couple had had him as a better Aaron Gordon, which is, you know, I, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. But he's like if Aaron Gordon was polished offensively, and if Aaron Gordon to, to was me, polished he, offensively, to me he's kind of like a like, hybrid. To me, he's kind of like a hybrid of 
Aaron Gordon and Blake Griffin. So he takes like the like a little bit less of the absolutely like otherworldly athleticism, though he is an incredible athlete. Like, you know, he's he's maybe like a quarter step behind those guys, but he has so much more offensive polish and his jump shot right now is better than either of those guys' jump shots now or probably in the next five years. Yeah. I try and avoid like comparing light-skinned African-Americans to other light-skinned African-Americans. I know, African I do too. I hate, I hate because... that those are the guys that come up, but I mean, you're running into a very narrow circle of guys that are skilled, that are crazy athletic, and that have kind of 6'9", six, 6'10", six, size. There just happens to be that they share a they share a certain level of, of melanin. It's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah I, I don't really know that there is like a traditional comparison to... Uh, I don't think one exists. Yeah, to Michael Porter. He's a really interesting player. Just so polished and well, it, so big and he's he's athletic for a six foot ten dude, that dude is athletic as hell. Right. Uh and he's fluid as hell, particularly in terms of his body control and his balance. Like that guy is I'm telling you, he he is going to be a star. Like this, I feel confident. This on is him. a transition that might surprise you and will definitely surprise the listeners, but another guy who has a really nice, surprising, mechanically fluid jump shot for his size that I I loved him at Nations and I really liked him here is Wendell Carter. Like Wendell Carter, mm-hmm. yep. he can just stroke from he so he's center sized at six ten, you know, he's he's a little bit of a bigger kid, but in a good way. He uses his size well. Super long arms too. And he can shoot like when you I, I was standing or I was sitting for the there's a practice at um at a separate facility in Portland and you're sitting on bleachers and I was basically right in line with the college three point line. And if you just watched him shoot, like from basically from the head down and didn't think about his size, you'd be like, that's a good jump shot. And then you mm-hmm. go, oh, he's a center. Okay, then. Yeah, he's he's kind of townsy in that way, in terms of like the mechanics on his jump shot, just looking so fluid and so sound, right? Um, he's not Carl Towns as a prospect. Oh, hell he's no. a really good prospect, but he's not Carl Towns at all. The name that I've heard occasionally with him is like Derek Favors after like the first injury kind of like whenever he was on Utah and like was starting to figure things out. Right. Like he wasn't like this hyper elite athlete, but he was a good athlete who was slightly undersized for the center position, but probably best off playing it in today's NBA. The key with him though, is again, I think that Wendell Carter can really shoot it and that makes him an incredibly valuable potential prospect. He also, I expect him to be a, a better collision than pro just because those limitations are not going to rear their head in college at all, but they might in the professional level just because we're seeing where the center position going is going and it's horrifying it, to the guys like him. You know, it's like, yeah, Carl yeah, Anthony Towns is special and, and he will always be towards the top of that heap as long as he stays healthy. But that bumper crop of crazy talented bigs is just going to keep growing. And I don't think there was anybody at this year's summit that really capitalized on all of that but you still have more bites at the apple like mo bamba is not the most skilled guy in the world but he has a seven nine wingspan and his mechanics on his jump shot aren't terrible he needs to care more like he needs to exert his will more but if one out of every 10 guys like him works out then the NBA is just going to have another, you know, another few really good centers. I was at a Nike basketball Academy out here in LA last summer. And I was talking to a scout about Bamba and it was, I think like the third or fourth time that he'd seen him live. And he goes, that guy's a dinosaur. Like just the way that he, not the, not like in terms of like being an ancient relic of like past NBAs, but in terms of the way he just swallows everything at the rim. Like that guy is go like he's going to be the best rim protector in the NBA at some point. It just depends on like 
does he add enough other stuff to his game to where he becomes a two-way player versus just this crazy elite defensive player? Because, you know, if he gets up to 240 pounds, like we've seen with Rudy Gobert, like it's game over for whatever team drafts him defensively. On kind of the the other end of the big man spectrum, but I really liked him, even though I his jump shot makes my makes my insides curl. Jaron Jackson Jr. is a, somebody who he can kind of seemed, shoot it though, can't he? Yeah, it's so there are two things with him. One, his jump shot is horrifying because it's basically like a push shot. It's it, it makes me more uncomfortable than Lonzo's shot ever did. But it goes in, and he, like Jared Vanderbilt, another guy I liked that apparently was not as popular among the people who watch these players a lot more than I do, and I always admit these are a smaller sample size, that they were around when good things happened. Like they were, they were, they were the guys that their, their hand was in the passing lane where they, they were at right at the rim at the right time off a cut. You can't draw on, you know, like 20 or 30 moments over four or five practices in a game. You can't say that's something they do all the time, but you start to notice it. And then, you know, at a future time, maybe when those guys are in college, you start to kind of file it away and say, well, if this keeps continuing, maybe they can build something out of that. Yeah. Jackson's an interesting one in that, like, high school basketball scouts or whatever he was probably the worst player invited to hoop summit right like in terms of like ranking or whatever you want to call it he's a guy that nba people are a little bit more excited about though because he's 6 10 7 4 wingspan i don't think the shot's as ugly as lonzo but i do think that it's not ideal mechanically but yeah, he can it, shoot it just makes me uncomfortable it's not as ugly as lonzo's it, you're just sitting there going ha huh. like it, it it freaks you out a little bit well, he, it's it's like combined with the fact that he's six foot ten and yeah. like, like has why, super why long he's arms. Not, he's and, not five foot eight. He doesn't need a push shot. Yeah, like why does this shot? It's also like you know this guy has bad mechanics and is shooting threes. How does this shot go in? You know exactly. It, well, and like also like of, he's the son of an NBA perimeter player. Like how does this happen? So it's, it's a little bit weird. He, he's a guy that I think will fit really well with Tom Izzo next year. And if they get uh, if they get Miles Bridges back, they're going to be able to play like him jackson and nick ward together and i think even if they don't get bridges back jackson and nick ward are going to play really well together for michigan state next year because you're going to have a little bit of floor spacing you're going to have jackson who's going to be able to protect the weak side of the rim for the bigger you know more floor bound nick ward it's going to be a nice combination for sure what guards impressed you because i kept hearing a lot about colin sexton uh not being up there and he's a guy that I've always really, really liked for the college game, but wondered if he was a little too undersized for the NBA game. What were your impressions of him while you saw him? He is going to be so divisive because if he figures out how to how to clean off the rough edges of his game, because he he's a little he there are a few guys like this, not only in this class. And it, there's these are 17 year old kids. It's not a big deal that this happens. He is a little bit too in love with his jump shot for as good as his jump shot is right now. And there are two ways right. that can work. One is he can get a better jump shot and then be be in love with the right thing. Or he can learn that he can distribute more and do good passes. But he's very talented and he's very fiery. Like the first thought I had with him, not as much because of his talent level or anything else, but just the fire he plays with and his ability to just get places was Iverson. Like he's not the scorer that Iverson is. It was just this small element of his game that is similar but I was sitting there and it's also funny because I didn't like Iverson as much as most other people did. And I'm fortunate that his prime did not coincide with when I was on the internet because there's so many people that would hate me for that. But mm-hmm. granted, I give Iverson his MVP year was incredible, but 
Sexton has that. If you can turn that ability to get to the right place at the right time and be just a bad man in terms of effort when he's on into a consistent impact, he can be a great NBA player. Like He's different. He, I think he can do a lot of things well, but he's going to have to improve just like every other 17-year-old point guard that has basically ever existed. Yeah, I think that that's fair. He's definitely more score first, though. Yeah, than... but, but he's a good passer. His, he had the best... To, well, so Trevon Duval was disappointing in this. I've seen him other places, and I thought he's been better. But Sexton... He's freaky. Yeah, but Sexton looked to me like he had the best vision of any of the point guards on either the U.S. or the international roster. Just in terms of mm-hmm. finding guys, like if a guy was open for a half a second and it was like perspective, I would have trusted Sexton to hit him, which is crazy because Duval was good at that at Nations. But Sexton was better at it in this, and... It'll be interesting because Trevon Duvall, a fascinating talent and also somebody who his crazy long wingspan is going to be useful in terms of the NBA. We, we didn't talk about that much with with Fultz and all those guys, but like we're seeing this group of point guards who maybe they're not the greatest primary ball handlers distributors, though Duvall can certainly figure it out just like Sexton can. But I think Duvall is going to be able to switch a little bit if he gets stronger. And that's that's such a huge defensive benefit, especially if, if he maybe he's not as you know, he's not as athletic as like Russell Westbrook or something like that, because it's very few people who have ever lived are. And right. so I, he's I like that next level below, though. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that those guys can make it work. It's always hard, though. I mean, other than Rubio and Sean Livingston, and I'm not sure I saw Chris Paul in high school, but if I did, based on what I saw of him early in college, I would have felt this way. There are very few high school point guards that are ever sitting there going, oh man, he's got it. Like It's just so hard because they're still figuring it all out. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Point guard is the hardest position to grow into, I think, uh, at the NBA level. And just real quick on Duvall, I I love Trayvon Duvall's game. I think that he is just so much fun to watch. He is a freaky highlight machine uh, with quickness, with explosiveness, with long arms. Like this dude, I've seen him throw down like 180 between the legs dunks. And he's like a highlight waiting to happen with his game off the dribble. You know, like you said, maybe he doesn't have the passing instincts that you hope for out of a point guard. But that guy is freaky whenever he's on. And I think there's a place for him, you know, even if it's not everything. And another guy I wanted to mention that I enjoyed a lot. And it's so weird to have two guys that are going to Duke that I enjoy watching as much as I do. But so they have Wendell Carter and they also have Gary Trent Jr. Gary Trent Jr. I'm not sure what he's going to be as a pro, but he's going to be so much fun as a collegian because he's smart. He's tenacious and his jump shot's pretty good. So I think, I think it'll work out reasonably well. I'm not sure what his pro potential is. I, I mean, I think he'll, I think he can at least be a rotation guy based on what I know right now. Like I'd say that's his expected value, but he's going to be an, a really fun collegian. Yeah. Gary Trent will play in the NBA in some capacity. The key with him is athleticism. He doesn't get a whole lot of separation from guys, but We'll see. I like him a decent amount. I think he's a good basketball player. He's polished. He understands how to get buckets. He doesn't really add much else right now in terms of his game. Like he doesn't really do a whole lot, but get buckets. But once he get bucket, he once he's getting buckets, he's super valuable. The guy that is there that I didn't hear a whole lot about this week is Troy Brown. He is to me the best mix of, you know, elite level talent going to a situation 
that will take incredible advantage of his unique skills. A six foot seven guy with point guard skills who can dime people, six eleven wingspan. That's perfect for Dana Altman's wide open system. He, he's going to like absolutely wreck there next year. He didn't really stand out in the setting. I liked him when I've seen him before. He was just kind of he was more around at moments, but he, you know he picked his spots. He's certainly talented. Like I, I just think he didn't he didn't pop in the setting, but there were so many guys who did. And somebody else I want to mention just because his physical talent is is pretty impressive is Kevin Knox. Knox yep. needs to figure it out, kind of like Sexton, except that Sexton's a lot further along. But Knox needs to figure it out. But if he does, I mean, he's an, he's a, a good athlete. I like his his motor like 85, 90% of the time. I'm happy with it. The other one, you're just sitting there like, why aren't you there? But again, like Sexton, he's a little bit too in love with his jump shot, settled for way too many shots. And if you are in that, you know, elite, like if you are an NBA level athlete and you are not playing in the NBA, you should be trying to murder every single person who comes in your way. I, I agree with that mentality. You know, Knox, I think, you know, the thought right now is that he's going to go to Duke. If he goes to Duke, he's going to be the perfect, like, stretch four for what they've built over the last few years with Justice Winslow and Brandon Ingram and then Jason Tatum this year because he's so skilled on the perimeter as well as just the athleticism at six foot nine that he brings to the game. He, he's going to be a really good player for them if he goes there. And then you might have had four Dukies there as well because the thought is Duval's either going to go there or Seton Hall, I guess. So, I, I, as you know, I root for every single relevant prospect to go to a school with other players so I can actually watch them. That's fair. So we'll see if Duval goes there. Do you want to talk about the international guys at all? Anyone stand out? I mean, RJ Barrett's the big name, but he's 16 years old and we're not going to be having to worry about him from an NBA perspective for a couple he, of years. He's intriguing. It's going to take him some time. I mean, you, you noticed the, the fact that he was able to hold his own in scrimmages and everything against the international guys when he's a full two years younger, like he's 16. That was impressive. Like you didn't notice his age as much. My favorite guy. Oh, he's, he's like three years younger than most of the guys there. That's too. true because a lot of them are, yeah, they're in the 18, 19 range. Yeah. So the guys that, that stood out to me, you know that I loved him at Nations, but Nikhil Alexander-Walker is just one Love of my him. guys. I, I think of him more as a an off-ball guy who can defend one, so maybe more of the KCP Danny Green mold than a true point guard. Like I don't love his ball-handling creation skills, but... The league needs those guys like that. You always do. You always need look at Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, like you can you can make that work, plays hard, plays good defense, ha- can hit open shots and can finish with both hands. All things I absolutely love. And well, he's going to be a killer on Virginia Tech. Next oh, year. man. Virginia Tech he's, loses Seth Allen. He's going to slide right into that role next to Chris Clark. Uh, he's going to be know. a nasty college player. I wish he had gone somewhere with a little bit more. I mean, I you know Vatek better than I do, but I wish I wish he'd gone somewhere where he could be like the second or third best player on a good team. But he'll he'll be a killer there, and oh, he he's going to be. I mean, honestly, like I really like Chris Clark as a potential like under the radar NBA player. Mark that one down, people paying attention to predictions or whatever. Chris Clark's a really underrated guy in this capacity because he's a really good passer, really good rebounder at six foot six. He does all the little stuff and he's a super athlete. Uh, tore his ACL, but we'll see. You know, he's going to fit in so well with what Buzz Williams wants to do. Bunch of guys that are six foot two to six foot eight that'll switch and that'll play hard defensively. He's going to be a killer for them next year. I, I love what that dude brings. The other two guys, one who was better in the in the practices than the games was Hartenstein. I thought he was intriguing. I think his most likely outcome is as a bench big. 
because I don't really see him fitting defensively at either position or being good enough offensively that you have to put him out there as a starter. But the league needs players like him. I, I He plays with an energy, and I like his, his touch is pretty solid. And then the other guy, I, I can't remember his first name, but I think it's Mushidi. Mostia Mushidi. He, in the game... Was his jump shot looked pretty solid in the practices and the scrimmages, but in the game he was just nailing everything and was feeling it and looked really confident. And I think he played wing. I think he's like six four or so. If he can grow just a little bit more, but he's you know I don't think that he's necessarily going to be a star or a starter or anything like that. But I love a guy who can take that, who has the confidence to take those shots, to make those shots, and then to keep taking him. He is like kind of a Norman Powelly frame. Yeah, you know, that's he's about six right. Foot four with like a seven foot wingspan, kind of a thicker frame, not necessarily like a super skinny gangly frame, but like kind of a thicker, uh, more powerfully built frame. Really good, really, really good prospect over there for Megalex in Serbia. He's German. You know, I had him as a top 30 or top 25-ish prospect coming into the year. Didn't have the season that we were hoping for over in Serbia, but you know, people that were super excited about players like Nikola Jokic and Luawu last year, for instance, at Megalex. People need to realize, though, that like those guys were all 20, 21 years old and that this kid's 18. This is his first you know, draft eligible class. He turns 19 later in the year. So he's just like a year or two behind those guys in development. But I think that whenever he decides to come out, maybe it's this year, maybe it's next year, he's a top 40 pick. It's just going to be dependent on when. You know, you mentioned Hartenstein. Hartenstein, he's a really interesting player at seven foot one. You know, big frame, highly, highly skilled player. Some of the outlet passes that he kind of dreams up. Did you get to see that skill at all in practices? Yes, a little bit. He, yeah, he, he just freaky. And he, I like that he sees it quickly and then he throws it quickly. You know, it's it, yep. it's a it's a basic thing, but it's something that if you're not LeBron James, you need to do. Yeah, no, he, he creates points with his ability to outlet pass. And that's a really rare skill that you only talk about with guys like Nikola Jokic and Kevin Love and like maybe a couple other guys throughout the NBA. I think he actually has that skill. Like you said, solid touch around the rim, potential to stretch it out a little bit uh, is like a like possible stretchy five kind of guy. We'll see what comes of him. I mean, he's a what did you think of him athletically? Because some people I talk to think he's, you know, actually a really good athlete. I'm not that high on it necessarily. I think he's a good European athlete, which is a little bit different than like an NBA athlete. I would go more in your direction. I think it's possible that his his whiteness underrates him a little bit athletically, but that doesn't make him yep. a good athlete. Being an underrated athlete doesn't mean that. I, I think that he can hold his own in terms of, you know, like kind of sticking with his guy, but I don't think he can like switch on smaller guys or anything like that unless he gets a little bit more fleet of foot or is just so strong that they can't get by him, but I don't usually that doesn't work. Yeah. And then the other guy that was there, well, I'll talk about two guys real quick, I guess. Bariza Simonich is a guy who really put himself on the map at basketball without borders last year, you know, has all of the talent in the world at seven feet tall, 230 pounds. Now uh, he plays for red star. He was getting legitimate minutes at Euro league team when he was 18 years old last year. And playing like well for them. And I think it got a lot of people, including myself, excited. I had him as like a top 25 prospect coming into the year. Took a little bit of a step back this year. What you hear about him in terms of, you know, his ability is that his mental toughness needs to kind of really improve 
in the way that he attacks the game both on and off the floor. He's improved his body a lot, though, over the course of the last couple of years. So you have to hope that maybe that kind of portends a real desire for the game and a desire to make things work. What were your impressions of him? The best thing he did was his first practice where he was just hitting everything in sight. Wild yeah. shooter. Like like when he when he's on like that and he and, you know, he's decent enough with the ball in his hands. If he's playing straight four, you know, at the three, it's kind of the Aaron Gordon problem. If he's at the three, they could they'll, oh, be, able to four, figure, they'll sure. be able to figure him out. But at the four, you know, he, he has a little bit of verb to him, especially if he's a backup. I think that could work for him. But his shot wasn't going as much the rest of the time. And he is not at that level athletically at this point. But I could see him being a good player. I'm just not completely sure that will be in the NBA at this point, but with, especially with internationals, you want to give it a little bit of time for it to work out and he'll need skill development. And that could fill in the gap that he might have athletically. I will predict that he plays in the NBA, but I don't know, you know, when or how effectively yet either. He's still a pretty decent ways away in terms of his development. And the other one is uh, Tada Setakerskis. Uh, he's a Lithuanian kid, a little bit older than a lot of the kids in attendance, I believe. Interesting combo-y forward that I would imagine you probably noticed was a little bit more polished than a lot of the guys there. Is that right? Right. So the first day, Simonich looked way better because he was actually hitting every shot. And then you started to realize that Setikerskis, right? He just had a better skill level. And, right. you know, that he, he, could, he could make some of the kind of smaller things happen. He made reasonable decisions with the ball in his hands. But I think some of the same concerns about his ability to create separation against NBA players, you know, maybe, maybe he ends up more of like an ACB guy, but I think I, you know, I I liked him. I thought he was fine. But when you see compared to the level of athletes that were on the other side of the floor, I mean, good Lord. Yeah, no, I'm not sure that he even plays in the NBA, but he's at least an interesting guy to kind of, to kind of follow going forward, you know, because he's a really interesting type of player that's already getting minutes in the ACB for a EuroLeague team again. And at 19 years old, 20 years old, it's rare for that kind of thing to happen. And he was also on the, uh, I want to say he was a U18 all, you know, all competition member this year. So, do we want to talk at all about the Kentucky kids? Did either of them stand out? Shea looked intriguing. I mean, I thought that he had a good, he had a good head on his shoulders, and he, like all young point guards, he needs to figure all of it out. But I could see, I could definitely see him working out. Now I'm trying to remember. He's, he's like a point guard shooter kind of yeah. combo he got. Yeah. Well, who are the other? He's fine. Why am I forgetting who the other Kentucky guys are? Uh, Nick Richards is the other Kentucky kid. He looked better in the game than he did at any other point where he just he just put it put it together, had a couple of nice possessions on each end of the floor, got called for some BS fouls, which is a, a standard of the hoop summit. I, I you know, I thought I he needs to put it together. He was to me the best of their true centers, you know, like so Hartenstein's a combo big. He like because the other some of the other guys were just a little bit stiff. Which, yeah, you had uh, you had Obiagu, you had Filippo Dosanos. I, I like um, Dosanos a little bit. He's intri- a guy that I'm going to kind of file away because he's legit like seven one seven two and moves oh, relatively well and has and has good touch on it. Like he has relatively good touch on his shot. Not necessarily in terms of like the mechanics, but just the touch on it's nice. So he could work out. But I would say Richards was the best of their true centers. Yeah, Felipe Dosanos is like seven three. He's a big dude. Yeah, like he he's a big big dude. Like would be like among the biggest players in the NBA. I, I'm just not a huge super giant fan in general. Like I call guys that are seven foot two, seven foot three, and taller. Really, seven foot three and taller super giants. It's really really difficult to move well enough to play in today's NBA at that size. And 
I think he moves reasonably well for his size, but I don't know that it's good enough. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So yeah, that'll be something to watch moving forward with him and and a lot of these guys. It's just really how does it how does it work out for for some of these? You know, like, is there a is there a place for them in the league? And I think that you want to have at least one of those guys on your roster, especially now with the two way contracts. Like, you know, if it, if it's if kind of fifteen plus type of thing, but they might not be featured unless they can reach that really high level for a little while. Now that we're getting into the spot where, you know, it used to be that you had to make a choice between like a jump shooting big and somebody who could protect the rim or some of these other things. And now we're starting to get closer to the point where those are becoming not standard, but more commonplace. Yeah. I'd have been interested to see a Jonathan John there. I saw that our good friend, John Gavoni tweeted out that, uh, NBA execs were a little bit disappointed that he wasn't there. Really, we should just have John fill out this roster every year. That guy knows what he's doing and, you know, trusts, or I trust him finding the right guys that NBA people want to go and see this event. But I guess that, like, in theory, it's not always an event necessarily just for NBA executives either. Uh, it's an event for Nike in some capacity as well. So, you know, it's always one of the best events. I'm a little bit disappointed that I didn't get a chance to go up this year. But I'm excited for the future of it because it's like I said, like it's a great, great place to scout a lot of these international kids, and it's a great place to scout a lot of the you know up and coming American stars of tomorrow. Certainly, anything else you feel like we have to discuss? We've certainly gone on long enough. I don't know. I mean, I went like a whole week without my Nespresso machine, and I feel like I was going through withdrawal. Do you want to talk about like your coffee addictions or anything I, else that uh, I don't drink coffee? Never have. I have ever had it in my life. I went through law school and writing a book, and I do not drink coffee. What is wrong with you? I don't like. Actually, li- what I, is right with you more than anything? Well, but like- I, I'll explain it short. I'll explain it in a very short way, which will make sense to people who've listened to this podcast for a long time. I do not like the feeling of dependence. Mm-hmm. I don't want chemical, whatever, really. And so for me, I always kind of said I never want to get to the point because I have some friends in college and in law school, adults that I knew where it's like they said, like, I need a cup of coffee to get up in the morning. And I was always so afraid of that that I just went, I never want to even get close. So like I barely, I, I mean, I have, I, I've had some really good cups of coffee in my life. I don't love the flavor of it, but yeah, I don't, I don't do anything like that. So yeah, when I was doing those like four hour nights for basically the last couple of months, that was without the aid of caffeine or any other stimulant type stuff. Yeah. That's, that's insane to me in the crate. I think that the Nespresso machine has probably made it a little bit worse because I can get like high level coffee in my kitchen. Just the best gift that my parents have ever gotten me. Shout out. You, Michelle you need to get them to be a sponsor on game theory. Dude. I, I tweeted out. I'm like Nespresso. I will shill your product for you every single podcast. And, and they, they probably understand that I do already. And they're just like, this person already talks about Nespresso on every podcast, man. Like he's, we're set with that. But no, I mean, it's such an, such an incredible addition to my life. Did you get to do any wildlife uh, searching? And did you get did you get out into the wilderness in Portland just to close this up full circle with a uh, with a Bill Walton type atmosphere and discussion? Yeah. My my ex- my exploration was more on the culinary standpoint. Being friends with Nate Duncan allowed me to try some cool places in Portland I'd never been to before, and it was. Did you guys do the breakfast place we went to last year? We did not do Babaka Hen. We did Screen Door, which was amazing. Uh, was I it never- better than Babaka Hen. Yes. Oh, wow. And was good. And Afuri, I think, was the name of it. That was very good. And I think one other place. And it was, yeah, I mean, Portland is ridiculous in terms of that. 
Yeah. I think that a lot of people get super excited about Portland as a city. I think it's kind of overrated in general, to be honest. Like I'm not a big fan of the industrial architecture, not a fan of how gloomy it is and how cloudy it is. But man, the food and the beer is, you know, it's just top notch. There are a lot of places there that I haven't even tried yet. You know, like you can you could think of going up somewhere a couple of years and going with people who know what they're doing that you that you could hit all those hit kind of all those spots because it's not like Portland is a huge city. It's not small, but it's not massive. Right. And there are still a lot of different things that have I haven't tried yet. And also, full credit to them, I, I, something that they did at the Moda Center, and I think they were one of the earlier arenas to do this. That they have local a lot of the food in the arena mm-hmm. is local local vendors and things like that. And I, I always love that. I think that's one of my favorite things. They've done that at the Golden One Center in Sacramento. And I would expect that that will be a part of the Chase Center in San Francisco once it's built. Yeah. My best example of that is, have you been to PNC Park to see a baseball game in Pittsburgh? I've been to PNC Park to see a rain out. Oh, wow. Uh, that's very disappointing for you. But you still got to see the general atmosphere in Absolutely. general, everything that goes into PNC Park. PNC Park does a great job of getting Pittsburgh food in there, and they do a great job of just, you know, having an incredible atmosphere to see a baseball game. You have great sight line out into, you know, the three rivers and into the city. You have uh, just this really old school feel in terms of a ballpark. It's just the best best ballpark in America that I've been to by far. It's either best or second best for me of the modern stuff. I mean, I still Wrigley is still for for what it for what it is and Fenway's great. I miss Old Yankee yeah. Stadium. Old Yankee Stadium was awesome. I, I really Rig- would. Wrigley was really good when I went to Wrigley. The problem was I went last year. Was it last year during the combine maybe? I went like on the Wednesday night of the combine. Oh, you have to go just- you have to go to a day game at Wrigley. Day game during the summer. Day game during the yeah. summer at Wrigley is one of the greatest baseball experiences I've ever had. I love basketball, and basketball is my one of my favorite sports to watch live. Hockey is actually my favorite. High end hockey is my favorite. But what baseball can do is it can provide a completely different atmosphere. And that game was it was just amazing. It wasn't even like it was an amazing contest or anything like that. It was just a blast. Yeah, Wrigley is like that where. Even if you don't see a great game and even if it's cold and rainy and you have to stand under like a space heater, it's just an incredible experience. If you're like a baseball fan, it's like almost like equivalent to like this religious experience. I mean, I'm not religious at all, but like, you know, I would imagine that it's similar in that vein. The only other, so there's only one basketball arena that I've ever felt that, and that was MSG. I've only been to one game at Madison Square Garden and I, it felt different to me. It was a, just a, a weekend day game with the Knicks, but I, it felt different to me. Yeah. I've never been to like some of the like better SEC and ACC schools like Louisville, Duke, Kentucky. Like I haven't been in any of those arenas yet. And I think that, I think college arenas almost give you a better ambiance than NBA sure. arenas. Not, not my alma mater, but many other ones do. Yeah, Paulie's not fantastic in that capacity. But an underrated one that I had a blast in was Utah. Utah at the Huntsman Center. That place rocks. That place gets wild and crazy and so loud. And it like you can feel it like bouncing and everything like that. It's just a really, really fun experience. There was another, there was one other, uh, oh, playoff hockey. I mean, yeah. I am so excited for playoff hockey. I'm going to go down to a Ducks game coming up here next week and just going to have the most fun that I can possibly imagine. Cause I, my girlfriend likes hockey, but for those who don't know, my girlfriend's Australian and it can be a little bit of a challenge sometimes to get her into American sports like baseball and basketball, but she really likes watching hockey. I've been like kind of prepping her that you've never been to an experience like a playoff hockey game. The most fun that I've ever had at a live sporting event was I sat at the highest level 
at the old Civic Arena before the Penguins built the new, um, I forget what the arena is even called now, to be honest. I think it's like PPG Paints Arena now. But before that was built, I went to this old Civic Arena, got to see the Penguins play the Senators. The Penguins scored like four goals in the first period, including two by, if you remember a guy by the name of Gary Roberts, he was like a... At that time, he was a 40 plus year old winger who was getting by after, you know, multiple like back injuries that should have ended his career. But he was just like a crazy old man that was everyone was scared of in the locker room. So no one would cut him. He scored twice in the first period. And that arena was the loudest arena I have ever been in in my entire life. And it was a blast. And I'm so excited to go to playoff hockey. Loudest arena I've ever been in in person was Oracle but not at a time that most people would think of. It was when in 2013, when they closed out the Nuggets, I lost the hearing in my right ear. I lost the hearing in my right ear for a few hours. That was the only time that's ever happened. But the coolest experience like that, without talking about the the impact of the game itself, was this is a this is like this is going to make you a little bit mad that I got to have this experience. Uh, my first ever hockey game was NHL was at the old Montreal Forum for Canadiens against Nordiques. And for those who don't know, like those are the two Quebec teams. They hate the crap out of each other. And it was, it was electric. It was so much fun. Yeah. But that, that was, it, that be... and, and it's, I, I like that you brought up that your girlfriend has those issues with it because listeners to the show might be familiar with that. My sister hates sports. The only sport that she tolerates is hockey. She enjoys hockey. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, it's just, just so it's physical. Fun. It's so yeah. up tempo. Well, and because I think also, cause she, she likes some of the Olympic sports like ice skating and all that. And, and the combination of ice skating plus like having to do skill, like stick work and having people hit you. Like she can understand how insane hard that is in a very visceral way oh so like with my girlfriend it's because my girlfriend's australian uh she's had a couple family members play australian football like in the past like in the 70s and stuff she loves the physicality of hockey like she she just thinks of it as like oh these dudes are going all out all the time and just beating the crap out of each other and it's super fun like australian football which i've also gotten into and i think australian football is super fun it is. I, I've gotten a little bit. I watched a fair amount of Olympic rugby this past year and really enjoyed that as well. It's still not team handball, which is still my favorite Olympic sport, but it's it's up there. <laughs> team handball. I, 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 I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but I've said this on, on Twitter and things before. If I could pick a sport that is not popular in America to be popular in America, it would be team handball. Why? It, it com- basically combines a lot of the other things that Americans like about sports in a way that has less less like crazy injuries. Like, of course there are a lot of injuries in team handball, Yeah, but like, so basically it takes the kind of the athleticism skill set is kind of like in terms of leg muscles is similar to basketball, but it also requires the ability to throw a ball really hard. So that's a little bit more like baseball and there are kind of different ways to be good at it. So it's kind of like a more accessible, less violent water polo. And I just think it would be, (laughs) I think it would be a good sport because you don't have, you can be, you can do different things and enjoy it I, and be good at it. I like to have guys pick up. The problem is, it would probably take away some people from basketball. Like I've, I've thought about, like, like LeBron James would probably be the perfect team handball player because he's so big and so strong and throws a ball crazy hard. You know who would be the best team handball player in this 2017 NBA draft? I don't know. Donovan Mitchell. Oh, Donovan I can see Mitchell. that. 
Donovan Mitchell at Louisville is six foot three with like a six nine wingspan, wild, ridiculous athlete. But he also throws a ninety mile an hour fastball. Yeah. <laughs> it took you. It took you almost two hours, but you were able to get a Donovan Mitchell mention in the podcast, and I appreciate that. I love Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. Greatest. You were with me last year at Nations. We were planning to go out for dinner, and I was like, "Yeah, I really want to talk to Donovan Mitchell. I'm gonna, you know, talk to him after this workout. He he wants to like get some shots up. I guess he thinks that he didn't shoot all that well tonight." An hour later, after everyone but me, Donovan, and his mom have left the gym, uh, I finally talked to him after his workout. And I'm like, man, you know, you realize we're like the only people here. And like, this clearly is just you working your ass off, right? And he's just like, yeah, man, I really just think I need to improve my jump shot. And last year he shot 29% from three. This year he shot 37% from three. So hard work pays off. That kid is one of the hardest workers uh, that you'll meet coming across college basketball players. And that doesn't just come from me with that experience. It comes from uh, people that have dealt with him over the course of the last like half decade. So uh, yeah, I'm a big Donovan Mitchell guy as well. Totally good reason to, to be so, but we've, we've gone on long enough. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Thanks, Danny. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Sporting News and Winner's View, and you can also listen to him on the Game Theory Podcast, his own show, which mostly focuses on college basketball. It's really good. I've been on it a few times, but he has other guests. If you're interested in college basketball who are far more knowledgeable than I, we actually talked about the CBA on it in terms of how that affects college basketball. It was about a month ago. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love talking with him. I kept in the end of the podcast because I thought it was fun. And it's also more representative of the kind of conversations that the two of us have outside of the podcast. We talk about all sorts of stuff. And so I thought that was fun to keep in there and just a little bit more color in everything else that's going on. I hope you really enjoyed it. It was a fun one to do, and he was able to come on in kind of short notice, so I really do appreciate that. My schedule got all messed up kind of with the Hoop Summit, not complaining, just a little bit different, and always good to have somebody who is amenable to that, and Sam certainly is. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating. You can leave a review in the podcast player of your choice. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Those are great things to do with this and every other show to show your support. Also, with this episode, we have three excellent sponsors. Movement Watches. You can go to mvmtwatches.com slash realgm for 15% off any order and free shipping, free returns, which is great. You can also check out Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. Blueapron.com slash realgm gives you three meals for free on your first order. And then SeatGeek. You download the free SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K. And then you enter the promo code REALGM at the settings tab, and then you get $20 as a rebate on your first purchase. So you can check it out. All of those things help. You can also check out this podcast and Sam's Game Theory podcast on the CLNS radio app. We are both part of the, the family. I was happy to encourage him to come in, and it's it's been, I, I hope he's, he's happy with it, but I think he is from when we talk about it. I love being a part of, of CLNS. Do so much great work, especially for those of you in the Boston area, but there, there are a lot of other great things. I think Coach Nick's B-Ball Breakdown podcast in there, there's Sixers material, just lot, lots and lots of stuff. But since CLNS is based in Boston, if you're into that, they have way more stuff than, than generally. So you can check that out too. And I'm going to have, hopefully, once I finish the edit, this edit on the book, I will have more time to do more writing. Of course, podcasting is still going strong, doing Dunked On, doing Real GM Radio, doing Locked On Warriors. All of those will continue into the playoffs. Of course, doing the Twitter NBA show 
and writing for The Athletic, and then we'll have some stuff coming out for the Sporting News and hopefully Real GM in the CBA Encyclopedia at some point in the near future. Have a whole bank of ideas. I just need to actually get into doing them. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com or Larue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond. That is of an entirely separate thing, and I will not promise that. But thank you so much for listening. I will have a new episode. The, the hope is to do a playoff preview with a guest TBA, as always. And that will presumably record Thursday or Friday and come out Thursday or Friday. Still working on the exact timing, but that that's what you should expect. Looking forward to the playoffs, as I always am. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars.